I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Do it to the pod. <laughs> All right. Welcome to SyrupCast Episode 5, the definitive podcast for all your Canadian mobile needs. This week, in addition to Douglas, hello Douglas. Hello. We have Jane McIntyre. Did I say her name right? Yeah, better. Amazing. Jane joins <laughs> Mobile Syrup after spending far too long at a site not dedicated to mobile and thus missing <laughs> out on all of the good stuff. Uh, Jane has seven years of writing in the tech space. She makes us both, me and Douglas, cumulatively look like noobs. And uh, she comes with a fresh uh, look on the tech industry and uh, lots of great writing experience. So we welcome her. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being Yay. with Mobile Syrup. And uh, we look forward to having many a podcast with you in the future. Yeah, Thank you. So, even our writers are Max. That's right. <laughs> So last week, um, last week we were criticized for going a bit too long. Doug and I tended to ramble and criticize children for driving while texting or texting while driving. That's pretty much driving while texting because you do more texting than driving, but I digress. So this week we'll try to keep it a little bit shorter. Uh, we're going to talk about Visa Checkout, which I went to San Francisco to check out. Um, we're going to talk about Microsoft and Rogers both laying off a significant number of people. Microsoft far more than Rogers, but both impacting businesses we talk about quite often. And we're also going to talk about a new regulation in the uh, European Union that may have an impact in North America down the road on what exactly is a free app. Can you call an app that pushes you to buy something even though you download it for free a free app. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And we'll talk about that massive Apple and IBM deal uh, that um, was announced last week and we covered in a tete-a-tete. Finally, we will talk about the NVIDIA Shield tablet and that was the new Tegra K1 based tablet that was announced earlier this week. So let's jump right in. Visa launches Visa Checkout. Doug, do you care about being able to pay for things on your phone? And I don't mean being able to go to a store and tap on a touchless payment terminal. I'm talking about more easily being able to pay for something like at the movies or at Amazon on your phone. I only care about being able to pay easily in the way that is most convenient for me. So whatever format that that takes, I don't care. I want ease of use and I want ubiquity. I don't want to have to know uh, or have to consider which way I'm going to pay at each location that I'm at based upon a lack of infrastructure, right? So right. Uh, that's, that's where I'm at. Now, does, does Visa Checkout help us get there or is it another initiative 
that uh, is what we would consider in the Breaking Bad terms a half measure. <laughs> All right, Haircut, thank you for that. So let's talk about what Visa Checkout is. It's basically a way to store your credit cards in a secure vault, uh, not only Visa cards, but MasterCards, Amex, and Discover cards that when applied uh, to a vendor, like a merchant uh, in Canada, the first ones are Cineplex, Lululemon, Staples, etc. They make it easy to log in once with a, an email address or a phone number and access all of your credit cards, all of your shipping uh, addresses, and all of your billing addresses. And the process usually takes about 10 to 30 seconds depending on the speed of your internet and how many steps the vendor needs you to do afterwards. But basically, when you're deciding on how you want to pay for something, this just makes it really easy to choose a credit card from within your vault. MasterCard actually launched something last year called MasterPass, and Visa Checkout is practically identical. It seems like the APIs are a little bit simpler to implement, but it still will take vendors about two to three weeks to uh, add the functionality. So I think this is an interesting product, and I really like the fact that it's going to be easier to pay for things. But Jane, have you ever had the urge to kind of, um, you know, basically they're saying we'll make it a lot faster for you to pay for things because you won't have to re-enter your credit card information and won't have to type in your address every time you want to pay for something online. Has that been a thorn in your side before? So is it, am I right in saying that this is kind of like single sign-in but for shopping? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's basically so PayPal well, no, checkout. I haven't really been sure what it actually is, but it is like when you're explaining it, it's, it's like single sign-in. So I think this is, in light of that revelation that I've just now had, I think it it might be the least sexy but most important use in like in like mobile payments in a long time. Because you can, yeah, well, like you, I mean, there is a certain amount of setup involved, but once it's set up, it's it's kind of it's there for life, right? Can you add? Can you like add to your to your wallet? I guess. Well, that's like, the more thing. More cards and stuff. They don't want loyalty cards to be in play here. They Unlike MasterPass, which is trying to create a virtual wallet, including all your auxiliary loyalty cards, Visa Checkout just wants to be a conduit for faster payments because so Visa, not, as a company, is a payment company. So it's not a wallet at all. It's just it's literally just single sign-in. It's single sign-in. Basically, Facebook check or Facebook, Google, PayPal, but just for your credit cards, and it's. And but just just for so I think the single sign-on analogy is apt in 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 the case that we're describing right now in the sense that it's it's not a wallet. Yeah, it doesn't do anything else. Yeah. It's specifically, and not only in the sense that it doesn't do anything else, but it also doesn't. A wallet holds all your cards, and to my knowledge, this is just for Visa cards, correct? Well, no, it, it's just for they do allow for Visa, Mastercard, Mastercard yeah. Amex, oh, and do. Discover. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then, the, so then the, the, I think the second thing here that the, the, we have to talk about in terms of sign-on is uh, security issues. Because as we've seen with uh, Heartbleed, you know, <laughs> <laughs> security, like, there, there are major, you know, uh, if this becomes uni universally adopted as the de facto standard for, uh, you know, payment sign-on, single payment sign-on, mm -hmm. um, that just creates one point of access for your, your information to potentially be uh, stolen. Right. And 
So, so I don't know if you want to take that or, you know, my, my third, con not really concern, but I just said just a question that I want to toss out to you guys is that, do you want this, is this a kludge? And, What's a kludge? Uh, a stopgap measure. Okay. Like a, uh, a MacGyver-like hack, I guess. Okay. Or like, do you, would you rather have someone like Visa implementing this or would you rather have it be at the OS or device level? Well, that, the thing is, they already do have it somewhat at the device level for physical payments. So when you're talking about uh, payments in stores, you're talking about NFC-based payments using um, a secure element inside of a inside of a uh, SIM card. So you'd buy this SIM card from Rogers or Bell or Telus, and you would then store your credit card credentials on that on that secure element, and then pair it with your phone. So if your phone gets stolen, it's no different than having somebody than being able to call Visa and canceling that SIM card because the credentials are for that phone only and therefore once the card is canceled, the payment won't work anymore. The same thing happens here. So not only are, yes, it's true that you're storing all your credit card information in one spot, but what you're also doing is uh, it's still going through the motions of Visa is still going through the motions of processing every single payment that goes through its system. So they have, they're the only company that has um, instant processing of every transaction that goes through their Visa net. And basically that means they're comparing your, uh, your, your purchases against previous purchases and against trends and against location to, de to decide whether or not that's... Yeah, a valid so they, transaction. They get, they probably get to charge a a nice processing fee, and then b get all the 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 data, the usage data. So I, I understand why it's compelling for them. But I think you were so you were in San Francisco, and I think they also gave you access to this and maybe a card to try it with. So what's from your experience? Is it from just from a user perspective? Is it is it easy? Is it useful? Does it what are there hiccups? Like what's the it's basically the, the equivalent of responsive web design for payments. So you have the same experience on a mobile phone as on a tablet, as on a, a web page on your laptop. Uh, it's an overlay, so they use an API to overlay Visa Checkout on top of the existing merchant's website. So if you, they demoed it at, at Pizza Hut, because that's going to be one of the first vendors in the U.S. to use it. You tap on Checkout with Visa, it pops up right in front of you, you enter your username and password, you choose the credit card, you press OK, and then you continue on with the workflow at Pizza Hut's own website. And they've implemented all of the information that you took from, uh, from the Visa website, but they don't store any of that information on their server. So it's important to know that the actual uh, payment, the, the, the payment for information per user is not stored at Pizza Hut's website anymore. That's important because when you're giving them your credit card before, you're actually asking them to store it on their side, and that opens up a target-like, you know, potential breach. Yeah. Um, so we're we're removing that from the equation as well, and we're also, uh, you know, adding on all of Visa's own security. So they're promising triple encrypted transactions. Uh, eventually, they'll be using tokenization, which is something that is going to have huge impl um, implications for the industry and. We don't really have a lot of time to get into it, but it, bases, it basically hides the processing information 
and the uh, credit card number from the transaction itself and swaps in a bunch of random numbers that uses uh, what they call a token in place of that real information. So nobody could ever reproduce the actual user information because it's just a string of random numbers. And they use, yeah. a, they use cryptography. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I found it to be a very easy-to-use uh, product. I don't think it's better than MasterPass. I think it's ex pretty much exactly the same. I think that Visa, however, is going to push it far more than uh, MasterPass what was in Canada because right now Visa has... Uh, they, they have a, a multi, like a $500 million ad campaign or something insane mm -hmm. that they're putting out in the U.S. and it's going to come to Canada early next year. Okay, so I guess that, that was my question in terms of just the, so it sounds cool, but if it's no different than the competing options, how do we get to the point where we only have to choose one and use it rather than flipping back and forth between different payment solutions? I, I don't want to have to think about this. Once I have to think about it, I'm just going to, I'm going to use something easier. Like, I want to use the easiest thing. I want no friction. Just, I just want to give you money. So mm -hmm. what will it take for them to get to that point? Just the, just the marketing budget? or No, they're, they're partnering with websites. So MasterPass has not really done a great job partnering with popular companies to implement the MasterPass APIs on their merchant websites, whereas Visa is going after the big companies that are used most often by Canadians. So... Uh, there, are as I said, Cineplex is one of their first clients. They have uh, Tiger Direct. They have um, uh, Lululemon, Staples. Eventually, they'll get a, a ton more. So I think that's important: is that they're partnering with the right people to get more exposure for the product. And eventually, they're going to combine Visa Checkout with the physical payment in store on your phone when you're, you know, tapping yeah, your that phone. That was my question: like, how is this going to transfer to like mobile? Like, it sounds like it's it's really handy for when you're ordering pizza from Pizza Hut's website, but how is it going to transfer to when I walk into the store? Like, how will it affect that experience? Right now, it won't. Right now, it's just for, uh, for payments made on your phone online, and they have an SDK for a Android and iOS developers. So somebody like Frank and Oak or, or even Amazon or whatever could implement Visa Checkout on their own mobile app and make it easy for people to pay and access their credit card information uh, without re-entering it all over again. Hmm. So it has it has a potential. I think it's going to be very interesting. If Visa is not taking this mobile uh, this this push into mobile uh, lightly, they're really moving quite quickly on this. But uh, there there wasn't anything groundbreaking in the product itself. So you know that's something that uh, I think they need to they need to fix. If, if not from a marketing perspective, then from an implementation perspective. All right. Well, um, so let's let's talk about Microsoft and Rogers. So these kind of go together. Um, we have some sad news coming out of Microsoft, especially out of the Nokia division. So, no, so we uh, have sad news coming out of Rogers, and we have extremely goddamn depressing news coming out of Microsoft or for anyone that's ever worked for Nokia or owned Nokia. Yeah, it's... Is it? It's depressing because people have lost their jobs. But is it depressing for us as, like, mobile enthusiasts? I don't think so. Well, for anyone that ever owned a Nokia phone and thought it was, at one point, hot shit, like, I, I think Yeah, so. I owned several Nokia phones and thought they were hot shit, but I was telling Daniel this morning, I was looking at the numbers for this, and Nokia had 25,000 employees. Like, that's that's nuts. That's bananas. Like, 
what do those people do all day? Like, when you, like, when they went to, like, I feel like Nokia has been in such dire straits for so long, especially before, like, the, you know, the partnership with, for Windows, Windows Phone, that I can't imagine what those 25,000 people must have done all day other than just, like, run the Department of Despair. Like, there's no, there's no, like, we were talking about how they, Microsoft is the same problem. They've got, like, 127,000 people working for them. And well, that's so, doubled in, like, the last 10 years. That's twice as much as they had 10 years ago. And they have done nothing, I think, over the last 10 years to warrant double the employees. Okay, so... so like, this is, like, a trimming exercise that will make both companies healthier. Okay, so the problem with that is that ELOP got millions of dollars for selling the company and, and gutting it, and those employ employees are suffering for a lack of leadership. I'm not saying it's not depressing from, like... A people story. I'm saying it's it's not depressing in terms of like innovation and progression for Mo for Microsoft and Nokia, who have been I feel stalled for quite for far too long, especially now that I know how many people they have working for them. So let's um, let's talk about the numbers. Okay. Microsoft announced earlier, uh, I believe it was last week, that they are going to cut 18,000 jobs from the company. As Jane said, there are over 100,000 employees there. But 18,000 is still nearly, it's 15% of their organization. 70% of those 18,000 people came from Nokia's devices and services division. So when Microsoft spent $5.2 billion buying Nokia and integrating it into the company, people knew that these layoffs were coming. But 70% of an entire layoff um, it, coming from a single organization means that clearly there was too much overlap, so Microsoft had already been investing heavily in its own devices and services division. So, uh, you know, if they weren't already working on a smartphone, uh, which this probably indicates that they were, because we heard for years that a Surface phone was coming, and it never materialized. Maybe they had already been working, the same people working on the Surface tablets had been working on a phone. Well, and but also, so you, I think you look at when we so Microsoft released its financials yesterday. Yes. As well, and uh, th when they were breaking down the, no the Nokia numbers, um, it seemed like uh, the vast majority of the phones that Nokia sold were feature phones, right? I think it was yes. something like they sold like 30 million feature phones, yeah. and only I want to say five million. Uh, five million Lumias. But okay. to be fair. The numbers only, they didn't include the entire quarter. They included uh, April 26th when the uh, deal was finalized through to June 30th, which is not the full no. uh, not the full quarter. So okay. we just have to uh, keep yeah. that in mind. But it was well, my, very... So my, point, my point being, though, is that the people that are going to get laid off aren't going to be the people making the high-end Lumia phones. It's going to be the feature phone makers, which are actually the phones that are selling. That's what I was so, going to say. That's where, that's where Nokia is making money. So, so, then, so you, you have a situation where a CEO comes in, completely rips apart a company, uh, sets fire to its own platform, which it says it was burning, <laughs> uh, then sells the company to Microsoft, only to then have it lay off a huge component of that sale, because there's a new there's new leadership at Microsoft. So I, I think you see in these situations, the reason why it's sad is because you have these large, um, powerful companies with a history of doing interesting things. And we want strong companies in the industry because they're the people that actually are able to affect change. 
and you have Microsoft and Nokia suffering from severe lack of leadership or from and the direction. Yes, and yeah. direction, a constant turnover of leadership. Which I guess it's like the CEO rule number one is whatever the previous guy did, you immediately have to undercut. Like you can never, and you know, it's you know to bring BlackBerry into this because I always do. There's there's a reason for that because if you're just executing the last guy's plan, you don't really have a, a chance to divert from that. I just I just don't see, I don't see why Microsoft, how Microsoft benefits from doing this other than in saving money. Could, so could that is, that is the only benefit, and that is the that is the only way. So first um, of all, Nokia made two million two billion dollars in revenue, and they still ended up losing six hundred ninety-two million dollars. So that speaks volumes, not only to the fact that Nokia was a terribly run organization, but that they had far too many employees. So this this culling was to cull the number uh, a, a number of Salaries, which was probably a, a, a huge amount of its uh, of its uh, expenditures, and to consolidate departments because that you can't have two devices and services divisions doing the exact same thing. So why are they doing the exact same thing? You, what you're, you're saying, I understand. There's always redundancy, but you're basically saying you, you paid, I think, six billion dollars for a company, and only one out of every four employees was worth keeping. Yes, but the one in four employees will help Microsoft create a smartphone strategy, which right now we can all agree is not working, but they didn't have the manufacturing capabilities nor the carrier relationships to go alone. And I think yeah. you're right. Stephen Elox, means, they yes. sold them a turd, but there was nobody else. I mean, Microsoft wasn't about to buy any other OEM. They weren't going to go out and purchase Lenovo. They weren't going to go out and, and buy some, you know, Chinese manufacturer or, you know, Samsung or LG. I mean, they are, this is a software so, software company that's dabbling, or now it's more of a cloud company that's dabbling in hardware. You all, yeah, that's a perfect point. And you also need to realize that, I think it was Steve Adolf said in his, in his memo to employees today that he was like, Nokia was 100% focused on producing great hardware, whereas producing great smartphone hardware is such a tiny, tiny part of what Microsoft's, like does every day, and they don't need twenty. What is it? Twenty-five thousand people to do that. Mm -hmm. Which is why when you say, "Oh, they're laying off," you know, seventy percent of their layoffs were from from one company that they acquired. It's like that's because still keeping twelve and a half thousand people to produce smartphone hardware, which is so not a priority for Microsoft that it's, un it's unrealistic. It's just it just wasn't going to happen. I, mean, I just I just think there's there's a world out there where Nokia is an independent company. Producing great hardware and making not yeah, stupid. Yeah, it was 2002. Yeah, well, it, was, it was 2008, and and the thing is that they Microsoft sold 30 million feature phones. Like so, as as Android and Apple look to expand to emerging markets with low cost handsets, Microsoft is laying off the employees at a company that are selling feature phones globally. But do you think that they not? Do you not think that the twelve and a half thousand people Microsoft still employs from Nokia are capable of producing like feature phones that will sell, as well as like you know the odd flagship here and there? Well, okay, let's look at it from this perspective. Thirty million, um, thirty million smart, uh, thirty million feature phones is not a whole lot of feature phones compared to where uh, Nokia was just three, four years ago. They were selling 
hundreds of million phone hundreds of millions of phones every year. Mm-hmm. Samsung is now selling hundreds of million of hundreds of millions of cheap phones every year and they're all running Android. So when you look at it like that, they couldn't have continued on Symbian. Symbian was a burning platform. As many as as much as the hardcore Symbian users say otherwise, it wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't extensible. It was not touchscreen uh, friendly. It was just it was done. It was it was over. So let's let's move on. Samsung sold 300 million units in 2013, according to Gardner. Um, and Nokia wasn't even in the top five. It was underneath Apple, Samsung, Huawei, LG, and Lenovo. So, you know, let's be serious here. Like, Nokia had no choice. They had to be bought. They were either going to go under or they had to be bought, and they knew that by being bought by Microsoft, they would have to suffer the consequences of redundancy. And that's just what happened. It's it's sad. I'm a, I'm a bleeding heart, but it's, it's you, sad. You, you're you don't think that this is better? You don't think this is going to create, like, a leaner, healthier company? What company? Microsoft? Well, okay, a leaner, healthier department within Microsoft, which already seems to be so confused about what it's doing with regard to smartphones. I, I, that would require me to have faith in Microsoft's strategy, which is... That's what I'm saying. So do, does this, do you not see this as encouraging? Where you had Steve Ballmer, who ran the place for 10 years, and you had instances of where you were seeing the kin announced, like, you know, weeks before Windows Phone 7. And Satya Nadella comes in, and there's all this bloat and a lack of direction, and it's his job to instill some kind of direction. And Nokia had a similar problem. There was no direction. So don't you see this as, like, a positive step forward into creating a direction for smartphones within Microsoft? Yes. Maybe, maybe but it was if, if that's the... Um, the, the barrier that we're trying to get over, then that's that's really sad. But just, just so I was just as you were talking, so I was looking for a tweet. So um, it, there was a great uh, tweet by uh, Sven Grudberg that I saw a few days ago when the news broke. Um, that part of this, part of the changes, comes with obviously Nokia dumping the forked Android OS that they were working on for oh, Microsoft, yeah. which duh, but. So that's that's the fourth OS to be dumped by Nokia in three years. That's uh, Symbian, Mego, and Windows Phone, Windows Phone 7.5, and the Nokia X platform. Hold up! Hey, 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 hey! Windows Phone 7.5 yeah. is not a different OS than Windows 8. That's like saying Apple discontinued iOS 6 for no, iOS so, 7. Uh, it well do yes because none of the apps worked. It was a completely different platform. They they renamed it. Yeah, they, they rename, but they always rename. I mean, it's an ARM-based OS. The same thing happened with Windows RT. The incompatibility was due to a different Daniel. kernel. Daniel. It's true. It's true. It's you, I don't buy the whole Windows Phone 7.5 being a completely different OS than Windows Phone 8. It, it was fundamentally different on the on, in, in its framework and its kernel, but okay. as, a, as a consumer-facing platform, it was just a, conti- a continuity of what had been out for two years already. I'm, I'm just saying 18,000 people are now out of a job because of what's happened in the past four years. 18,000 people are out of a job because Microsoft was too big and they they made too many products uh, diffusely and now they're focusing on making 
fewer products better. And I, I'm sure a lot of those Nokia employees were from that Nokia X line or were from the accessories line or were from the defunct R&D line that is now being consolidated into Microsoft. It totally makes sense. It sucks. I agree with you. And Microsoft's going to have to pay out a lot of severance, but it was an inevitability. Um, what, what may not have been an inevitability, though, was Roger's hundreds of layoffs. So let's talk about that, because this seems to be just one more in a line of, of cuts at Rogers in order to get Guy Lawrence's Rogers 3.0 vision up and running. So, so what do you say about that? There are Doug? three of us now. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think that this, so it's, I'm going to completely make myself appear to be a hypocrite simply because uh, I, I care far less <laughs> <laughs> about this. It's simply because this seems to be a much more targeted layoff um, towards uh, a, a goal which is enviable if not achievable, which is Rogers is replete with middle management and they're trying to streamline their org. This, this is a company that is, Come on. if not too big, burdened by um, different silos of interest and business, and there's just a whole layer within that company uh, of people looking to protect their jobs and their silos. So if, if this actually helps Rogers become a company that can truly execute towards their... Uh, 3.0 plan, then it's, a, then it's a good thing. It's also happening on a scale which is significantly less than the Microsoft cuts. Because so, there's only 10,000 employees at the entire company. Well, the fair. The entire company is Canadian. Yes. Why is it that you have, you're like, I, I said, you know, this is working towards like a leaner, you know, healthier Microsoft, and you said that that would require you to have faith in Microsoft. Why is it that you have more faith in friggin' Rogers than you do Microsoft? Because Microsoft didn't buy something and then destroy it. Or sorry, Rogers didn't buy something and then destroy it in the way that Microsoft. One could argue that Nokia was destroyed well before Microsoft ever bought it. If if these if uh, if Rogers had say purchased Wind and then laid off all the Wind employees, I would be just as upset at Rogers. But you know, companies companies have. Nokia wasn't an innocent bystander in this. Nokia was the one who chose to go with it. Nokia's only said burning platform. Let's go with Windows Phone, which is almost equally as unpopular. That was because Microsoft was paying them. Well, there was a, there was yeah, basically but they still, a, a. like they still took the money. Like it's not like it, it, they weren't coerced into choosing Windows Phone as their platform of choice. They weren't coerced, but they. They made bad business deals. They had no, they had no other option at the time. I mean, they had, you know, we we heard about Nokia's dalliance into into Android, but yeah. that started far earlier than merely with Nokia X. Yeah, they had did. tested Android on Lumia's in 2011, and they just didn't want to be another OEM to compete against Samsung. I, get right? you, so I agree that you're making my point for me in the sense that the, the Rogers cuts being smaller are much more of a mild course correction uh, than the repercussions for uh, what some people call radical stupidity or... Uh, criminal misjudgment at a CEO level. So I, I think, you know, I also think that, you know, layoffs are never fun. Good people go. Um, but this is much easier to swallow than 
than what happened with Microsoft. I don't think that I don't think that these layoff all all layoffs are not the same. Agreed. I agree. Hundred percent agree. But the scale here is different because you're talking about a company that earns three billion dollars in revenue a quarter over a company that earns twenty three billion dollars in revenue a quarter and operates in almost every country in the world versus operates in one country and that's our stupid country which has basically an oligopoly among the three telcos so yeah. I'm, I, I agree with you this is probably what Rogers needs to do it has been lambasted over the years for its customer service issues for its middle management bloat for its redundancy in, in products um, it's, it's confusing product offerings it's so-called bundles that aren't really bundles but are just disparate attempts at joining these portions of the company together um, but this is an actual move to make Rogers into a single company where everybody talks to one another because when I call Rogers about my cell phone bill and then I want to talk to them about my cable bill I actually have to talk to a different representative that should never be the case if I had to go to Apple to my genius and say I want my iPhone and my iPad fixed and they say well you've come to the right place because I will do both of them at the same time because that's what they were trained to do yeah so. and and I think that, that that is ingrained even far deeper where you look at what Rogers like the way that Rogers corporate treats Rogers retail and the fact that there's no uh, connection between those different divisions so I, I, I posed a hypothetical before about my lack of faith in Microsoft turning those layoffs into anything other than a cost-saving cost measure. Do you guys feel, and I'll put this to Jane because... Because I am very impassioned about this Because you're very impassioned about this. Do you feel that this, that this will help Microsoft make its transition, or do you have any faith in Microsoft, or sorry, uh, Rogers making its transition to their, their 3.0 plan to improve? Um, I would say, yeah, I would say... Uh-oh. Looks oh, like we lost her. I feel She'll like be back. I, I still disagree that I'm saying that it will help Microsoft. I think that, I, I think my my opinion, of, of, I don't think they're not all the same. All layoffs are not created equal. But I do feel that if, like, change, I think change requires action. I think that this is, I think I, I think it will. I think, I think this is the right direction. I don't know if it will be enough, but I think it's the right direction. I think that Rogers might be a little too set in its ways. We'll see. Okay, so let's, I think, let's yeah. actually... Let's Sorry. quote. Let's quote uh, a Rogers representative. Uh, they they're doing this in order to become a more nimble, agile organization. I mean, those those words would never be associated with Rogers or any of the telcos in Canada. I mean, you, you could barely call Wind a, 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 a nimble, agile organization, and it only has seven hundred fifty thousand subscribers. Um, I think that's the the goal here is uh, is probably quite, um, it's, it's noble in the sense that Rogers is trying to cut whatever middle management bloat it has, and Guy Rogers is, has not been, sorry, Guy Lawrence has not been afraid <laughs> to cut, uh, <laughs> to cut managers in this equation too. It's not just, it's not just store level employees and, uh, and, and developers and engineers that are getting cut here. It's not just salespeople. It's 15% of the people being laid off in this several hundred strong uh, cutting is uh, they come from the the VP level 
So, yes. so, so now huge. these are the yes, these are the type of people. These are not necessarily the people doing the work day to day and making things happen, but they're the type of people that need to be informed with any by any strategic decision. So these people can actually, in an effort to do their job, slow the speed at which a company can make radical changes. And if they've been ingrained long enough, protect against change because they've lost faith in the company being able to do anything. So it, it is a bit of a house cleaning. Um, noble or otherwise, I think you know it's, it's one of the things that probably has to happen for a company like Rogers to change its culture. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I do think it's definitely a culture change as opposed to, I think Microsoft is definitely like, they need to cut out the fat and they need to cut like the people who seem to not be doing anything. Whereas mm -hmm. I think for Rogers, it's definitely a culture change, like you said. So it's, it's, yeah, it's taking those people who are probably too institutionalized to change and who are resistant to change just because it's been that way for so long, so why bother? Because you can't fire them. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, wait, hang on. You're saying that there's been no culture change at Microsoft in the last, like, two years? I last say... two years, yes, but you're, you're all, I'm also saying that the person who was in charge over the last two years was not, I didn't foster that change and didn't, yeah. and didn't nurture it. I think there's... So I, I think it's more that the, the Microsoft layoffs don't reflect a culture change yeah. simply because those employees weren't at Microsoft long enough to be a part of any culture. No, no, I agree with you that the layoffs themselves don't, don't signal a... a a culture change, but I, I would argue that the culture change started a long time ago. It started with the move to cloud computing, to Azure, to cloud hosting, over to you know subscription-based office, to focusing on Xbox. Those um, are strategic. So that's, those are not strategic. Yeah, that's not a culture change. That's no. like a change in product. That's a change in focus. That's not a culture change. That's not a change in how the people who are running the business think. No, I disagree. I think that it has been a fun. They've needed a fundamental culture change in order to stop putting all of their eggs in the Windows basket. I think they had to, you know, but still, to right the ship. Promising, they're still promising a unified platform at the time. It's been a year, and you still don't have Windows apps on Xbox One. Like They're so, not talking about Windows apps on Xbox One. They're talking about Windows Phone apps and Windows apps and Windows RT apps being a single executable and a single developer platform. And I think that is going to happen sooner rather than later. I don't think anything Microsoft is ever planning to do can ever be described as soon. I think that with that many employees, it's like trying to turn the Titanic. Like, they can say that they're going to do it now. And like Doug said, oh, like they've been trying to do that for a year. And I, the thought that came to my head was like, a year is nothing in terms of Microsoft timelines. This is a company that takes them so very long to do anything. Okay, think about this. This is a company that almost admitted that Windows 8 has been an unmitigated disaster, and it has been. And yet, the company earned $23 billion in revenue and $6.7 billion in operating profit in a single quarter. Mm -hmm. How can you say that the culture change has not already started since they're no longer deriving nearly as much revenue from their, you know, quote-unquote, failing Windows department? Um, you know, so much of their, of their revenue now is coming from cloud computing and cloud services. And well, that just wasn't true a few years ago. Because because none of the decisions that have been made have led to new revenue. Those are all legacy things. Those are those are all Balmer initiatives or initiatives that happened under his tenure. Um, and I, I still think there's a there's a very big break between strategy and culture. Um, I agree. And, and and a lot. Of, if you look at the Rogers 3.0 plan, 
we were talking about this yesterday. I was making a significant amount of fun over it because a lot of it seems not strategic and it seems very airy fairy and PR based. But that's because a lot of it is internally focused towards changing the way that they approach customers or their own innovation or how they operate um, rather that's than saying change. we're going to go attack this market. But yeah, it's, I think it's more, that's, that's certainly more cultural. Um, now, I think, you know, we're, I think on either side of this, we would say that some of us are very cynical about the capacity for either of these companies to achieve it, but I just don't, you know, uh, again, not all layoffs are made equal. Although I will say we are probably the most conservative Canadian mobile podcast ever as we seem to be pro-layoff, <laughs> anti-teenagers texting while driving. And I, did, I just don't know how to feel about that. We, we're well, very old. But we're all drinking, so yeah. that's, that's good. So, Cheers. But we're drinking while standing, not driving. Sloshed cats. Okay. So, do we want, want to talk about even older companies or companies of the same age making what I would say would be extremely smart strategic decisions that, in, that reflect new culture? Or extremely intelligent cultural changes on both ends, yes. Yeah. Let's talk about Apple and IBM. So Doug and I wrote a tete-a-tete -tete about this. Um, I, was in New I was in San Francisco when this broke, and it was one of those things where I just, my jaw probably dropped uh, because this was a move that nobody really saw coming, but once it was explained, it made a whole lot of sense. Apple and IBM are working together on pushing Apple hardware in the enterprise and IBM is going to push, uh, is going to create over a hundred apps for specific verticals for iPhone and, and iPad. And uh, from what, what we saw yesterday from Apple's earnings where they sold less than three, three million less iPads in, this, in the Q3 quarter of this year than they did last year, points to a slowdown in iPad growth and iPad sales and this is going to foster a new kind of iPad user, an iPad user that has a, all the apps it needs to replace a bunch of different services on, say, Windows, uh, Windows PC, and makes the and will enable them to be a lot more mobile. So, Jane, what do you think about this? Coming from, I mean, you were around a lot more enterprise focus at Tom's than uh, than we have been. Does this? Does this feel right to you? This this partnership? I think it does, and I think I think the main reason is that we're kind of we're in the bring your own device age, where you have where IT departments are seeing more people saying, you know, I want to bring like my own device, and a lot of the times that is an iOS device because people want to use the same devices at work as they've been using at home, and I think that's where that's where I guess enterprise stands to gain from from this is that you have. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Apple devices running enterprise-grade software, and enterprise is something that Apple was never, ever going to be able to do well. Like, enterprise at that level. Like, you could say that they're going to do business well, but I don't think Apple would ever 
be able to do enterprise like IBM does enterprise. Similarly, IBM would never be able to do consumer-level devices the way Apple does. Well, because so culturally think... they don't care about enterprise. And Jeez, the word of the whatever, day. Whatever, whatever, no, because whatever Tim Cook <laughs> says about spent him getting 80% of his work done on his iPad, at the end of the day, they care about selling their hardware. Yeah. So for them, for them to partner with a company. And then, yeah, exactly. This is not about this is not about Apple admitting a weakness, and this is not about IBM admitting a weakness. This is about both of them saying, "You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours." Yes. Which, which, and just for the for the kids out there driving while texting and listening to this podcast, you have to understand. While drinking. Oh, hopefully not. Uh, how much these companies hated each other. How oh, yeah. they stole from each other, tried to destroy each other, and have been in like a 30-year pissing contest. But it wasn't. Was it a 30-year pissing contest? Because I feel it was more like a 10-year pissing contest or like a 20-year pissing contest. I don't oh, think yeah, the Apple, the over the last 10 years, I think the culture has changed so much that I don't think that IBM and Apple have even been looking at each other for the last decade. No, so I guess it's story. I guess not 30 years long, but 30 years old. Um, with the the 1984 commercials, but yeah, uh, this, yeah wow, 30 years ago. Um, I, I would say though that this is the type of thing that it makes too much sense for it to not happen. But I also don't think it would wouldn't have happened without Tim Cook at the helm of Apple. Oh, oh come on! What? Come on! Steve Jobs completely... would never have done it. Oh, yeah. don't, think... don't don't start with the Steve would never. That's that's no, like that's no, like a I mean child's Steve game. Would, I mean forget, Steve would never. Steve would never. Tim Wood. It's yeah, a smart, it's a smart no. move. And Tim, Tim will make a smart move. You get an IT shirt, Tim Wood. But Tim, Tim Wood do, do, Tim Wood and has done things extremely differently than Steve or any other CEO. But there's there's no doubt that this is still very much the same Apple. It's just a, it's a little bit more open to yeah. discussion from the outside world. So the monolith what? has 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 opened its doors an inch. And you know you can see into the in, into the nooks and crannies the way that the machine operates. I mean, the Beats deal uh, was so strange in the sense that right. the Beats deal coming, you know, a month or two before the IBM announcement speaks to the fact that Apple is able to segment parts of its company so effectively and still maintain a single goal of selling more hardware. Yes. You know? So and, and like ideally. That's what the Beats deal was, and this is what the the IBM deal was. So while Microsoft tries to synthesize companies and acquisitions to be this multi-headed octopus, Apple stays focused on the one thing that it does well, which is producing integrated hardware, and then it partners with other people Boy. to fill out its portfolio of things that it either can't provide or has no interest in trying to learn how to do. Because right, it knows but... that it won't do well. Because it doesn't care. Because it, it wants to make great hardware with integrated software. And great, we can this this company will help us with our, our streaming music services, which we don't really care about, but we know that as a, as a platform provider we need to have. And this company will dedicate 100,000 people to sell our phones and tablets in enterprises and then help us make software for them. So thank you for doing that for us. And we can just focus on making really great physical products because they, they're smart enough to know they need them and, and they're also smart enough to know to not try to do it themselves. But that's what I don't get is that when you guys talked about the Beats deal and not to get into Steve would never, when the Beats deal was announced I was like what the f that makes no sense like 
It, they're rubbishy headphones that Apple doesn't need, that they already sell in store. Like, I didn't get it. The The IBM deal was one where I, yeah, like you, my, like Daniel, my, my jaw dropped, and I was like, that is the perfect partnership. And I don't think that, I don't think it's fair to compare those two deals at all. Well, I think that the, the Beats one is a marriage of convenience. It's Apple, you know, waving its superiority around and saying, we can do what we want, like, why bother, we're too lazy. I think the Beats deal is a case of we're too lazy, because what's just, Apple can make its own pair of shitty headphones. They don't want to make shitty headphones. But it's not not the quality of the headphones, it's the quality of the brand, and that's what Beats is. They built a huge brand. I don't think it's that. I don't see the Beats brand as being valuable enough for Apple to want to buy it. You're not 17. No, I'm not that's, far off. that's not it. That's I don't think that's the point. I think that you have to focus on what what the Beats brand gives to Apple. It gives Jimmy Iovine, who has been, they basically spent, I would say, a third of what they bought Beats for on Jimmy himself, because that's been the guy who's championed the Apple brand for 12, 13 years now, and the the. The streaming radio service, the, the the subscription music service, you have to remember all of the legacy, all of the current Apple hardware owes its life to the iPod, and the and Apple iTunes. that we know today um, wouldn't have survived without iTunes being so vividly integrated into the iPod, mm-hmm. and I so think that I Apple realizes it. Why not because spend that money they spent on Beats on developing iTunes into the, a similar kind of service? They already have the user base there. Because it's iTunes is a piece of crap. They're lazy. They're so lazy. What? This, is, this was like an easy hit for them. And like when the Beats thing was announced, I was like, I'm, I'm honestly not joking. I was like, that's a Microsoft move. Like that is so lazy. It is just so... Just You could tell they were just like, sure, we'll buy it. Why not? Because they're they've tried they've tried to add things to iTunes before and it they've they've failed. They're getting better at learning what they shouldn't play around with. Um, and iTunes is bloated, and I, I, I don't think it's lazy. I think they're, they're obviously both marriages of convenience. And I think that I think iTunes the, the level of return on either, but they both reflect the capacity to think outside of what the individuals at uh, Apple can produce on their own versus opportunities with extended partnerships which which is a which is a, a, a new thing because even even when even when Apple was partnering with uh, Motorola to do uh, phones with music on them they were so dictatorial with the conditions and it produced terrible products this is a little bit Apple understands that there's there's a a benefit to partnership on somewhat equal terms. Yeah, that's what I I don't get. I feel like it's unfair to describe both of them as marriages of convenience because I see the Beats deal as a marriage of convenience, and I mean convenience for Apple, whereas I feel the IBM deal is like a power move that benefits both equally. Well, uh, uh, Apple didn't buy IBM. Jimmy and yeah, Jimmy and Ray got some mad cash, and like there's. There's some benefits there too, and an Apple email address, which also carries some cachet. So, <laughs> I, I think I think I don't think anyone's unhappy. I, I also think that IBM, oh, they're so happy to be able to walk in with yeah. the hardware that exactly. uh, the companies at whatever enterprise they're selling to 
is already demanding, and they're happy to be working with development teams to produce uh, iOS versions of their enterprise services, which they've been working on and haven't really had the the, the uptick that they want. Like, it's it's marriages of convenience can be a good thing when everyone is convened, convenienced, convenienced. But I think nobody really knew what Apple was up to when they bought Siri in 2009. Yeah. Look what happened. It became a front and center um, feature. And I don't think that they bought Beats just for the subscription service. They don't, I I agree with you, Jane, they don't care about the headphones. The headphones are crap and they know it. Um, And they don't need another hardware brand. They have a great, they have the best hardware brand in the world. They started, I mean, they sell their iPods or whatever they call them, EarPods, for 40 bucks a piece. And they know they don't sound good, but everybody wears them. So... I agree with you, but it's not that that they bought the company. No, and I for. understand that. I know that they bought it for the streaming service, but I don't know a single person who gives a shit about the Beat streaming service. Because you're not in America. I mean, AT&T, AT&T partnered with Beats to provide a family plan, so you spend 20 bucks a month and you get access to five user accounts. Uh, it would normally cost you like 50 bucks. I think that's what it is, four or five. Yeah, I think it's you five. Know, and that's a great deal because if you want your entire family on a single plan, you know these are the kinds of deals that Beats got into before Spotify, before Audio, before Deezer. I mean, the, this is this is an enterprising company that built itself up from practically nothing in the last five years. People so, buy Beats headphones because LeBron James and Kobe Bryant wear Beats headphones. But do they buy Apple products because Kobe Bryant and LeBron James use Apple products? Of course not. They stand on their own merits. I would I would think that Apple would buy a company because they thought that the company would stand on its own merits. So, so we'll see. Not to not to crash the party um because this is my favorite conversation, but BlackBerry is no matter we're talking about who benefits more from all the Apple money, but uh poor BlackBerry is getting left out in the cold. What? BlackBerry, BlackBerry with this IBM deal. Oh, well, BlackBerry is basically, I mean, let's let's talk for a second about the fact that BlackBerry is now competing against Apple plus IBM and Google plus Samsung in the uh, enterprise market with, um, you know, containerization, bring your own device, uh, EMM. Uh, you know, these are all things that now Apple and Google can offer that BlackBerry has been singularly able to offer in the past. So... Yeah, I agree with, with you. Blackberry's a fraction of the employees. Right. Does it look good, Doug? <laughs> this is where I say it doesn't look good. Um, oh, no, by yeah. the way, look what look what Daniel got today. That, my friend. <gasps> look at that. That's the future of Blackberry, right this there. This is the future of Blackberry. It's a trademark infringed keyboard on okay. an iPhone. This is the final production version of the typo. Ryan Seacrest, I hope watching and realizing what could have been if they had only partnered with Apple. Right. <laughs> Instead of sued the company that created the product. So, uh, yeah, I'll that, be reviewing that. that. Passport, though. I don't get that. Oh, yeah. But, okay, so then uh, people hate us right now for going on about this. So do we want to talk about something that they really care about? Let's, is... Well, I mean, we've already gone 10 minutes over what we promised we would. What? You know, already? We're at 56 oh, minutes. Okay. So let's let's move on. Let's talk about free-to-play games in the EU. Okay. Now this is a decision. No, no, no. Are, so are we going to talk about free-to-play games, or are we going to talk about the 
Canadian mobile plans? Are we going to keep it Canadian? No, no, no. We're, we're, we're going to save that for another time. I don't think uh, we have the, the space or the temperaments to fight with one another <laughs> on uh, the Canadian mobile plans right now. But, um, let's, so this is, this is an interesting topic because um, there's, there's been a lot of controversy about, you know, what is, is Candy Crush a free-to-play game? Can you play Candy Crush without spending anything? Of course you can, and, and King wants you to believe that that's true, but so many free-to-play games today uh, inevitably sell you product or sell you items. So the EU has made a decision to enforce Google and, and probably Apple down the road to call games that coerce in-app purchases uh, as something else. No longer will they be able to call it free. It may well, not be just, called paid, but it won't be called free. I, I don't. It's not. They made a series of recommendations. The European Commission made a series of recommendations to Google, Apple, and whatever European game developer um, body exists. Um, and and Google has decided to agree with those conditions. So they. they Actually, can't force. This isn't a legal move. They've they've just decided to implement this. So it's it's a little bit different because Apple, for its part, has responded to say uh, specifically that they feel like their um, user level privacy controls are enough to compete against not only the confusion around um, whether or not a game is free versus free play versus costing you money, but then the concern that kids are are buying or downloading these free to play games and then spending untold amounts of money while playing them. So it, there was a bit of child protectionism, which is... But it's, I, not I, actually, it's not actually helping, because now when you go to the App Store in Europe, it's just blank. Like, you have, like, this game is free, this costs one nine, and this one is blank, and it doesn't actually give you any further information. So what's to stop, what's, what, what's to stop a kid downloading the app anyway, or a parent downloading it, and then saying, here you go, and then the kid's still buying in-app purchases? I feel like it doesn't make any difference at all. Well, I mean, it's the equivalent of convenience stores hiding cigarettes um, but continuing to sell them. So people know what they're doing. I mean, if you know that you're walking into a convenience store with the intent to buy a pack of cigarettes, it makes no difference. Nobody goes to the app store with the intent to buy an app that's got in-app purchases, though. Like, I feel like, I feel like having it blank there does nothing to educate. And I feel like that's the problem here, because they're saying you can't call these free-to-play because people download them and they don't know that there's in-app purchases. So I feel that the solution to that problem would to be to put a disclaimer saying this app requires in-app purchase or this app, you know, supports in-app purchases. Well, I, I think already right. do. Because it's, 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 it's kind of like a, the EU approach to attempt to legislate user behavior. So they're, they're, they are trying to hide the cigarettes from the kids. And one of the conditions for this was not only just the labeling of uh, free versus paid games, but then also to limit the amount of to, to change the, change the terms and conditions of the store to prevent promotion of these games um, to children. But I, I also feel that it's 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 essentially feckless if you're if there's no mechanism to actually stop kids from downloading what they want. Which there is a mechanism to prevent them from spending parents' money. And I think that's that's what it comes down to. I mean, there's a timer so that you can ask that you can ask. Uh, previously, it gave you 30 minutes between entering a password because your your credit card is already stored in the Google or Visa or um, Apple account, so you wouldn't have to enter your Visa number or Mastercard, but you would have to enter your password 
that is now you now have the option of forcing people to re-enter your password for every purchase. So that's that's enough. I mean, right there, if you don't have, give your kid their your password, they can't purchase in-app purchases anymore. Yeah. The end. Right. Yeah, I agree. Which is which is essentially Apple's argument too, right? Because the iOS 8 uh, will have kind of family payment provisions on it, so they they don't feel like they're gonna need to gut their their free store in order to prevent this from happening. But I'm just wondering, so from uh, you know a North American or Canadian versus European perspective, do we feel like this is something that the Canadian government or the U.S. government would ever attempt to do? Is this a particularly EU approach to trying to solve a problem? I yes, think so. I think the regulation EU in the EU is yeah. I think it's notorious for being for doing things for the consumer that are so blindly misguided. I mean, to I to to give another example, they had the the Microsoft anti-competition browser thing where they were like, you have to give everyone like a browser ballot page when they first try, like they buy a new computer and they try and open up Internet Explorer, you have to give them the choice to download another browser because it's not fair that you have to force them to use Internet Explorer. And I think it's something that the EU thinks people give a crap about, but people don't. Well, I, don't yeah. I don't feel it requires... It's a problem that requires legislation. I think it's a stretch to call it a problem to begin with. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess this is different. This is not anti-competitiveness. I mean, yeah, that's what it, I mean, though, but it's, it's, it goes back to things that the EU thinks are issues for consumers but are, I think, decidedly not. Right. Well, it's... It's a, it's a huge issue for game developers who exist in an economy where no one is willing to pay $5 up front for a game. So they've created a system whereby they offer a free version with incentives towards um, spending money. Because you know, the other issue with this that, that, Daniel, I think you noted right off the bat is how do you tell the difference between a game that offers uh, value-added purchases in it to enhance and have more fun versus a game that's uh, like a casino slot machine just designed to take money from you. And that's not something that you can legislate, legislate at a broad level, but it's going to hurt developers who are, are just trying to actually make a buck off of their, their efforts. But they're not. They're not trying to make a buck. They're trying to make 99 bucks for 4,000 gems. And that's the problem, <laughs> is that if you're going to legislate the idea of a free-to-play game. Don't legislate the fact that you can call it a free-to-play game because that is fundamentally what it is. You can you, you can play it for free um, and eventually if you don't want to spend money you close it. I think if you're gonna legislate, it's the idea of legislating the gun or legislating the bullets. Don't legislate the gun, legislate the bullets. You know, Chris Rock was right. That's that's um, that's kind of his, his, his that hilarious um, you know stand-up routine where he's like, you know, guns can be free, but if the bullet costs five thousand dollars, nobody's going to use it unless they really want to kill somebody. You know, okay. it's the same idea. So if then, you... what's what's the corollary to that? Like, what's what's the example of the the bullet-to-bullet legislation? Because like we're with these free-to-play games, you have a situation where not every bullet is created equally, right? So do you now need a commission to evaluate? Yeah, do you need like like do you need like free-to-play, free-to-download, like? Different like distinctions for for the casino games versus the games that you can download and play, but not not Cause I, five. Because that the mentality, the psychology behind the design exists. I was at the Ottawa International Gaming Conference a few months ago, sitting on a panel of free-to-play developers, and 
each each developer had it like one was the casino game developer, one was the developer making uh, uh, branded games for high level IPs for movie launches and things like that, and then one was the that kind of you know casual puzzle game designer who's using free to play as a way to stay alive monetarily, and they all are going after a different psychological results with the the game design. But that's that's only something that comes across after, you know, days or weeks of playing the game to see how a the users are responding and you know what they're willing to to spend on and, and, and play. So how do you how do you how do you legislate against that? How do you create a how do you how do you label the bullets differently, and easily? There, there's no I I don't think there's a need to to legislate. I'm just saying if you're going to legislate something limit the maximum amount that you can spend in a game at once because my issue is that you say um, if, if you ask if a kid asks his or her parents for access to in-app purchases they're gonna go for the $99 you know recommended um, uh, recommended bundle yeah, over buy all the, the gems for sure right because why not I mean that's that's the that's the best value so that's my issue is that you know, these are these companies are pushing these ridiculous payment strategies on people rather than f focusing on microtransactions. And in the in the in the long run, it's like buying buying tickets for a game and then being made to feel guilty for having to use all of them, even if because yeah. you've already spent it, you might as well continue using them until they're gone. Yeah. No, you're um, you're right, and it, like it, it just becomes this end cycle of so now they're just going to design levels where you basically have to spend fifty cents to get past it. So they're not hitting the money cap, but they're forcing everyone to spend 50 cents. I just exactly. think if, if we're going to legislate this stuff, let's let's focus at the carrier level and get them to stop overcharging us, charging us for data rather than the games that we play. But I, I just I think you know, hey, it's cool to be in Canada where we have the the freedom to play whatever games we want and spend how much we want rather than a, a nanny state. That's right. Kim Kardashian is benefiting from that uh, that free market. Right now, she is so much money. So much money, sad. Um, speaking of so much money, uh, three hundred twenty-nine dollars. That is the price of the Nvidia Shield tablet, and uh, this was announced yesterday. It is the second-generation tablet in Nvidia Shield line. Instead of coming with a controller built in, like the clamshell original, this is going to be sold separately. So the actual tablet is. 329 bucks. You spend 59.99 for the wireless controller and 39.99 for the case slash stand, and you have one of the fastest tablets on the market. Uh, this is going to come to Canada. Uh, it's going to come in 60, 16 and 32 gigabyte versions. The 16 gigabyte version will have Wi-Fi only. The 32 gigabyte will have LTE capabilities. Uh, it'll also come with its own uh, Tegra store. So you can buy games that have been created specifically for the Shield tablet. Uh, I really like this idea. I think that gaming on Android has improved tremendously in the last few years, and uh, not only is the NVIDIA Shield tablet capable of playing any current Android game, but it's also uh, got the ability to s accept stream games from uh, Kepler-based GPUs on desktop. So if you have a really good game, a really high-resolution game like Batman Arkham City or something, you can actually stream it to your device over local uh, Wi-Fi or, uh, or over LTE. So 
Uh, what do you guys think of this, Jane? Does this uh, strike you as an impressive product? Um, I don't get it. I don't get how the first generation Shield was pitched as a handheld gaming console that could play PC games via streaming or, you know, um, but then I, I don't get, and their whole point, their whole shtick was that the controller's there, like, people don't want to play on a touch screen, but now they're selling a tablet, a controller, and a case all separately. Like, I don't understand why they're not just charging me 360 bucks and giving me all of those things as the same thing, because I feel like it's kind of like Microsoft and the Xbox One and the Kinect, whereas in the, in the beginning, they people asked, are you going to sell it without the, the Kinect? And Microsoft was like, no, the Kinect is an integral part of the platform and it will not be sold separately. And, like, it is now, but I feel like... I feel so you, like just answered, you just answered your own question, though. The reason why they, they debundled them is because the bundled version didn't sell. It was way just too expensive. It was too expensive. But yeah. I feel like I, that's one... That's one. That's another area where I feel like Microsoft should have, should have stuck to its guns and, and said no. Like, And I was really impressed when they said, we feel that this is... Part of the platform, it's necessary to for people to get the full Xbox One experience, and we don't want to sell it separately. And I feel like Nvidia should be selling everything as a bundle because what's going to happen is, is we're going to review this device and we're going to say, yeah, it's awesome, and then people are going to say, well, I don't want to buy everything separately. Like, I don't, what if I what if I only want to buy like I don't want to spend four four hundred or how much I don't know how much it's going to be in total, but on like all these different pieces. Well, they're going to sell. Uh, I think they're going to sell it the way that the market dictates that they want to purchase it, and I think uh, this tablet looks like a, a hot shit piece of gaming, but there are also some people that w want this tablet and the hardware and the streaming capabilities, but don't necessarily want the controller. Um, why wouldn't you want the controller? Because, so, so maybe, maybe you really like playing certain Android games and you want them to run really well, but maybe they're not, like, first-person... <laughs> shooter games or things like that. Maybe you just want to get some uh, some XCOM going on or the Walking Dead games that don't really require uh, a controller and just have a touch interface and you're going to save yourself. But then if they also don't require 192 CUDA cores for, or, you know, or the Tegra K1. Like, they don't require that kind of power. Right, buy, buy like, a, an entry-level Samsung Galaxy Tab yeah, and buy... you'll get the same experience. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. I, I think the, the better comparison is to the Surface tablet not being bundled with the, the keyboard, keyboard yeah. which is essential to creating the experience that Microsoft is advertising in every one of their commercials. Yep. I think 100%. that, Doug, this is a very powerful Android tablet that you can buy for not a lot of money, but on its own, it's no better than the Nexus 7, which is $150 cheaper. Doug, you are the 55-year-old man who spends $800 on a Surface because they want an iPad. <laughs> um, no, I'm not that guy. <laughs> His haircut but, okay. says otherwise. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, so, so is it just a psychological thing where anyone who buys the Surface tablet is going to pay for the keyboard, but they mentally they do the math, like they do the, they understand the price of the tablet, and they don't really pay attention to the, uh, the weatherproofing and the accessories and the tax on top. I think you can say that people don't pay attention to tax, or people will only focus on on that kind of price when it's when it's tax, when it's like a negligible amount. But when it's like a $200 keyboard and, you know, extra bit, like when it's, when it's a significant portion of the, of the price, I feel like people aren't going to overlook it. I think people are more, like, more likely to be mad. Okay. People are more but, likely to get the tablet home and they'd be like, why doesn't it come with the keyboard that I saw in the commercial? 
Okay, well, but that costs one hundred fifty dollars extra. Is is it because potentially the the really hardcore gamers who are looking for a portable service like this are using a different controller alternative? Um, you mean they've already bought one? Like, well, just that, or is just it like, compatible with third-party controllers? Yes. My my 100%. my man Kevin Tofel at uh, GigaOM games using Android tablets, and then uh, some gaming service that allows him to use like basically uh, a generic Bluetooth. Uh, Xbox controller essentially. Right. Um, so maybe maybe they, maybe they don't want the controller shell. They want something that's they want something else, or they they just want the ability to choose. Yeah. So I guess down the road, Jane, they will bundle just like Xbox One comes with a game. Some bundles you spend a little bit more, but you get a game and an extra controller. Eventually, I'm sure they will bundle all three items together and charge you eighty dollars instead of hundred dollars. But I agree with with Doug. Some people don't need a don't need a, a stand because they'll figure out another way or they'll lay it down on a, on a table, and they already have a sixty dollar controller and they don't want to be forced to spend that money. Yeah, but what my my principal problem is what you just said. They'll quote figure out another way. I don't think anybody should have to figure out another way to get the the experience that's advertised. But these are hardcore gamers. I mean, these guys have been creating their own PCs. <laughs> For 20 years now. Yeah, you don't have don't... to tell me that. Like, I came from, I came from a place where we, we catered exclusively to hardcore gamers and enthusiasts. I still okay. feel that it's they're not about doing things the hard way just because because they think it's easier. Yes, I they are. I don't know. No, they they're 100% they're are. doing things the hard way, or they're doing things the hard way because it provides a better experience. And I don't think like propping it up on a stack of like books on a table because I don't want to buy the stand separately is about you know providing a better experience. I feel like that's about like MacGyvering myself a solution because I don't want to spend the money. But for I mean, the, the same that I was offered. The same argument can be can be made for the iPad. You know, the iPad has a 9.7 inch screen, or any Android tablet that's ideal for watching media. They don't. None of them come with with stands built in. The, the Surface comes with a stand. It's the only tablet that actually comes with a stand built in anymore. So you know, you're not. This is I know, not and it's unique to the like... tablet. I know, and it makes you sound a hip, like a hypocrite because when it comes to tablets for consuming media, my position is if I want to stand, I'll buy a cover that's a stand. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you're the old man in this situation. Yeah. But so then let's flip this around and then and then just spitball because I know we're gonna discuss this in a in a tete a tete. But what so then what is the ideal Android gaming setup? Uh, the first shield. Even <laughs> the iPad. The biggest sin. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm interested in. I'm. I think that the most interesting aspect of this um, of this device is the is the Wi-Fi controller, which apparently promises improved latency over. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have no direct. opinion yet. Yes. No so opinion yet. we'll be getting the tablet and we'll be looking at it. Hell's yeah. Impressive. I think that it's it's an interesting. It's 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 a showcase more than anything. It's a showcase of the Tegra K1, which is mm. a Cortex A15 based CPU plus this new Kepler-based GPU that promises to be way faster than anything on the market. I do agree that most Android games can't take nearly advantage of it, but this is, I mean, this is really the Android equivalent of the of the A7. Like, you know, Doug, you, you were talking about Metal and how it makes it easier for developers to create really great games on iOS using, uh, like, porting over console-quality games for the A7 chip. I'm yeah, guessing that NVIDIA is going to make it seriously easy for uh, for developers to optimize their games for the K1. 
Yeah, and then I think that relates into the store, right? Where you're going to get all those uh, Unreal Engine games just streaming on this thing, right? right. Um, sure. But yeah, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Is so? Is this the just? I, we haven't played with it yet, but is this the Alienware of Android gaming tablets? Uh, or does that I don't exist? Know. Does Alienware make Android tablets? I don't think no, they do. No, well, I, I just mean like, say, I don't think Alienware is the Alienware of gaming machines. Like I don't know if, if Alienware is even really relevant anymore. Um, can, can you even make that a you know a comparison? Because Alienware, I mean, PC games, you know, you optimize all these various settings and you know anti-aliasing and high resolution, you know, for the specific setup that you have. But Android and iOS aren't really designed that way. So, you know, it, it does does speak to the fact that mobile gaming is not really aimed at an enthusiast market the way that yeah, PC okay, gaming so, is. So I will say that this isn't mobile gaming so much as portable gaming, which is why that NVIDIA is creating its own store for games optimized for a tablet. This is already selling to such a minor, like, you know, minor segment. Like, Daniel, you said that the best gaming tablet is the iPad, right? Like, there... People buying this thing are looking for a completely... They're looking for that PC experience that they can take with them because their custom PC is really friggin' heavy and they can't they can't take it with them. Right. Correct? Yes, but it is still a tablet. Yeah, but I it's think... It's so limited it's, by Android. But I think it's, it's doing more for, as Doug said, portable gaming than any kind of gaming laptop workstation ever did which still weighed a friggin' ton and was quote-unquote portable. So I think it's, I think it is a case of it's not mobile gaming, it's, it's PC gaming, but I don't know. Okay. So yeah, I, I, think, I think we have to get this thing, spend a weekend with it doing some serious user testing, and then in a future podcast come back. Are you going to play Bejeweled? <laughs> well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to spend maybe $150 on Candy Crush. There you go. So that we can kill because two birds with one stone. you can. So let's uh, let's move on. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have our second app roundup, and we'll we'll do it really quickly because if if anybody's actually still listening, they may they may be quite upset. God, I hope um, so. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna go I'm gonna go first. Um, my app of the week is Carousel by Dropbox. I'm a huge Dropbox fan. Um, Carousel was released a couple of months ago in an effort to focus on just the photo portion of the Dropbox experience. So for the last couple of years, Dropbox has been pushing individuals to upload all of their mobile and uh, desktop photos. Anything they upload through an, an SD card or just take on their phone in general, it automatically gets uploaded. Carousel actually uh, breaks down your photos into uh, location, into times, uh, into um, in, in chronologically, and it makes it really easy to flip between them really quickly and share them with family and friends. I've been using it quite a lot more than I anticipated, and it's available for iOS and Android. And uh, if you are a Dropbox user, I would heartily recommend it. And you, so you, how is it, if I'm an iOS user, how is that any different than, say, the iOS 7 photo experience? Because a lot of those features are in line. Or is it not really? It is. It's, it's exactly the same. It's, it's, it's the same as iOS 8's iCloud photo backup, but iOS 8 doesn't exist yet, and until now, iCloud pricing has been way too high to justify backing up all your photos to iCloud. 
and there wasn't a front-end portal like there is in Dropbox. So Carousel is a, is a platform play. It just makes it easier and better and more intuitive for Dropbox users to okay. archive and, and look through their photos. Uh, Doug, go. Oh, man. Okay, so <laughs> I can't believe we're going to be ending the conversation with this. But So I've been thinking a lot about uh, two different apps this week. Uh, one is an app that I, I use that I, I feel morally that I shouldn't, and the other is an app that I don't want to use, but I feel like I should in support, and those two apps are Swarm and Tinder. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if this is the, the time that we're going to have this conversation, but um, how do you guys, you know, and we were talking about free-to-play games and the ethics of that, and you, are the apps on your phone purely about utility? Do you feel any emotional connection? I was a hardcore Foursquare guy. I know a lot of the people at Foursquare. Uh, I like them a lot. I in no way want to use Swarm, but I feel like out of a, some sort of legacy support that I should you know, keep giving it a go until it provides me the experience I want from it. Um, on the other hand, uh, Tinder has been providing me the experience that I want from it, but the, the company behind Tinder is facing uh, significant concerns around its uh, misogynist culture, to put it as briefly as I can. And uh, I'm, it, it creates a pause whether I should support a company um, that I, I can't ethically support. Or mm -hmm. should, I, should I support the app use of a company that I can't ethically support? So I'm wondering, that's what I've been thinking about this week. I don't, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but... No, I, I don't, I mean, unless unless the app is, I, I, it's the Woody Allen argument, right? Like, can you can you love the product without loving the man? Wow. And, uh, Burn. No, it, I'm serious. Like, okay, the Roman Polanski, if you want to do it. Okay, you know, with if, someone if, who's if, actually, if it's, yeah. if it's the too soon argument there. But, <laughs> but, I mean, seriously, like, can you separate the people who create the app from the app itself? And I, I think you have to. I mean, yeah. You're not talking to the misogynist pigs who created the app. You're talking to the lovely Unless women of Toronto, <laughs> or maybe you are. But uh, yeah. you know that's that's your choice. And you know, for a lot of people, Tinder has opened up a new world of dating that um, you know, whatever, plenty of fish or whatever the other one is that uh, you just couldn't get on mobile. Okay, so take it the other way then. Is there any apps that kind of stuck that you use because you either anticipate that they're going to be better eventually and you want to kind of stick with them or because it's like the uh, the good guys band band bad band scenario where it's it's not that great but you, you kind of want to stick with it uh, I mean Instagram is kind of my default like I use Instagram a lot but most of the photos that are posted on my feed are terrible most of the photos that I post are terrible um, but I love it and you know I'm, I'm unabashed about liking likes and I'm unabashed about you know that that like teenage side of me that really pushes for oh how many likes did I get on this photo and you know will this framing be a 15 like or a 25 like photo I mean it makes no sense rationally I don't I shouldn't give a damn about it but I do and, and like I think a lot of people do that's, so, but that's even that's like a third category of your guilty pleasure app that you shouldn't like um, so you're saying that Instagram is your Tinder Daniel. Instagram is my Tinder. Well, I'm I'm engaged, so you're just a boy standing in front of an app asking it to help you. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
Um, so Jane, what about you? What's what's your app of the week? My app is not really an app of the week. It's more of a promise of an app of the week, which I guess might tie into dogs. Like, do you do you use an app to? Because you, you know it's going to be better soon. Is that app or Apple? Google is going to release the um, the Android Wear watch custom watch face API soon ish, um, and they've asked people not to not to publish, not ask developers not to publish their their workaround custom watch face apps. To the, to the App Store for now. So right now, creating a custom watch base is doable, but you have to make like a standalone application, and it's, it's not a pretty process. And Google has asked that developers not push them to the App Store because it will create a bad experience for users. Um, and they'll have, I guess, like support issues down the line when, when uh, Android L and all that gets pushed to, to where, and they do end up releasing the custom, custom watch base API. And I would like to confirm that, yes, Custom watch face apps in the App Store create a shitty user experience and are not pleasant to use. We tried a couple of them during the weekend and, and did terrible. not like them. They're awful. Most of them are they're made awful. by like people who have no taste and it's like they're not custom watch face APIs. They're just ten other ugly watch faces that you can put on your watch if you feel so inclined. Exactly. They're, they're gross and the usability is crap and they're not user friendly so at all. You're ex you're hoping or expecting that the experience will somehow improve. Improve because Google through. told me it would. Yeah. We believe everything Google says. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much for tuning in. Yay. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Jane. Thank uh, you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Because uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a Daniel out there that's listening. And uh, thank you to everybody who tuned in and stayed put for the hour and a half. Long Syrupcast episode five. It was uh, double the length that we promised you would be. Just so uh, we're gonna go two hours next time. Yeah. yeah. The marathon session, 24 hours eventually. That'll be Syrupcast episode uh, 10. So uh, we'll see you next week. We're gonna be trying to broadcast on Thursdays, publishing on Fridays. We're gonna do our best to have the same uh, routine every week. So uh, and we'll eventually do it live. So we'll do a, a live hangout on air. We'll, we'll invite everybody to join us, and uh, we'll see how that goes as well. So until next week, thank you, and uh, have a great week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm